it takes a long time to write books. It takes a long time to run a marathon. It takes even longer to train for a marathon. Uh, but if you don't take any shortcuts and you push yourself and you do the things that you're afraid of, you get, if you get comfortable with being kind of uncomfortable, uh, then that's where the magic can happen. That's Matt Futterman. And this is episode 74 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your host, Mario Fraioli. And this week on the show, I'm joined by Matt Futterman. He's the deputy sports editor of The New York Times, and he's the author of the new book, Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed. Matt is an avid runner himself. He's run 23 marathons and is qualified for Boston. And we had a great conversation about his new book, which is largely about Coach Bob Larson and his quest to discover the training secrets that would lead American runners back to prominence on the world stage. We also talked about how Matt got into running and developed an interest in it, why track and running have fallen out of fervor with the mainstream media and what he's doing at the New York Times to help bring more attention to the sport, the appeal of the marathon and what's taught him about himself and life in general, the importance of being process-oriented and appreciating the journey, whether that's running, work, or life, and so much more. This is a good one, folks, so I'm not going to waste any more time introducing it. Let's dive right in with Matt Futterman. All right, Matt Futterman, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. Been a listener for a while now and uh, completely honored to be uh, on the other side of the microphone. Well, I appreciate that. What's been your favorite episode so far? Uh, you know, my my uh, one of my buddies uh, ran for Gagliardi at um, at it's Gagliardi, right? At Gagliano. Yeah, excuse me. Gagliano. I knew when I said it, it didn't come out right. I, you know, and I sort of read about him and heard about him for years and listening to that, to him talk and, you know, he's in his eighties now and hearing that kind of commitment and passion he still has for the sport and how emotional he got when he was talking about, uh, some of his runners who have passed away. It was, it was great listening to that and just like sort of as he, as you know you got to know him and you really felt like you got inside not only his head but also his heart. Yeah, that was a really special conversation for me as well from a number of different angles and I was totally thrown off guard when he started getting emotional thinking about his athletes and talking about them, but it was also really impactful because I could I could see the emotion on his face, I was sitting right across from him, but you could really see just how special his athletes have been to him over the years. And he kept using the word family, and they really are like family to him. And he is that sort of consummate father figure um, in their lives. And doesn't mean it's always, you know, smooth sailing. They butt heads from time to time, but he just really genuinely cares. And that was probably my biggest takeaway from that conversation. Right. I think my, I taught for a year at the University of Arkansas, and I, it didn't. It didn't quite sit with me well. It just wasn't like my thing. Um, and I, it took a little while, years really, for me to understand like how teachers and coaches really tick. And in the same way that like writers make stories and make books and investment bankers make money, 
what I have come to understand by you know talking to coaches and befriending teachers and is that what their satisfaction comes from is they make people. Uh, that's that's their product and that's what they gain so much meaning from and satisfaction from. And I think that's what really comes through from him. You know, it's not about money when you're a teacher or a coach. It's not about glory. But what it's really about, the thing that's lasting is this person that you met and it was he was one person or she was one person. And by the time you were done with them, they were something else. I think that's spot on. And I want to put a pin in that. We're going to revisit that theme later in this conversation. But let's bring this back to you and just start with a little introduction. I don't know that many of my listeners will recognize your name from the get-go, but why don't you tell us who you are and what you do? Uh, Well, I'm Matt Futterman. I'm the deputy sports editor at the New York Times. I just came out with my second book. It's called Running to the Edge. Uh, And it's about uh, Bob Larson. Uh, who most people know as Meb Kifuzki's coach. That's how I knew him for years before I realized there was this unbelievable backstory and that this guy was sort of the great unknown guru of American distance running who was so important to uh, a world when when people never really ran distances. Uh, It just wasn't a thing that happened. He was there at the beginning of the running boom, and he was there for the revival of American distance running in the 2000s. One of the few people who are, and he's one of the first guys to think really, really hard and really figure out how people can run really far, really fast. Uh, So that's been taking up my life the last couple of years. I spent about 10 years being the lead sports writer at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I've been a runner for I don't really remember when I didn't run at this point in my life. And uh, it's, you know, a huge, a huge part of what I do. It's sort of everything from, you know, a form of prayer to my quiet time to uh, just, you know, a great way to commune with like-minded folks uh, everywhere I go and actually, you know, see places. There's nothing better than sort of landing in a strange city and looking up on a map and finding a good place to run and going to get lost for an hour and a half. I couldn't agree more. And I think that last part of how you described yourself is really the most important because without being a runner yourself or having this interest in the sport, this book would never have been written or it likely would not have been written unless it were another person, maybe like such as myself or someone who has a running background, but also, you know, the writing chops to, you know, put this together. So I really enjoyed it. I thank you for putting it out. I definitely want to get to it in the course of this conversation, but I'd love to stay on you for a little while longer. You mentioned that you've been running for as long as you can remember at this point. What are your earliest recollections of the sport and your introduction to it? I can tell you my first race when I was 10 years old uh, was the Larchmont five-mile run in 1979. I grew up in Larchmont, New York, which is a little town about a half hour northeast of New York City on Long Island Sound. And this was the 70s. This was the running boom. And every town wanted to have its own race. And so in 1979, Larchmont launched its race. And I wasn't, I, my, my brothers, I had two older brothers. And we, you know, I'll use trained with a very lowercase t. Uh, I think like a week and a half before we decided we were going to do it. And we went on a few runs in the evenings, like before dinner. And uh, race day came around. I happened to have a 
playoff game with my soccer team. So I wasn't going to be able to do it. And then it got rained out in the middle of the game. And I went home and my brothers and my parents were just leaving for the run. So I hopped in the car and got to the starting line. And it was a five mile race. And I was 10 years old. And I ran, I still remember my time, it was 4015. And uh, I, I got nipped by my middle brother in the last mile or so. But my older brother got a bad stomach ache and I, you know, crushed him by a few minutes, which feels pretty good when you're 10 years old <laughs> and you beat your 14 year old older brother. Uh, so, and I, and I just remember, I remember it was, it was drizzly and I remember finishing and just not really being tired um, and thinking, wow, this is really cool. And I, and I, it was right around then that, I became super interested with marathoners. Uh, I, I remember, I do remember watching the 1976 Olympics and knowing that Frank Shorter was supposed to win and that he had won before and that then he didn't win. And I remember being really interested in that distance. And I'm like seven years old at the time. And I just thought every kid who was a sports fan would be interested in this. And I was, I was fascinated with Bill Rogers who kept winning New York year, year after year. Then Alberto Salazar came around and these were like some of my heroes. And I, I knew from when I was really re young that I was going to run marathons one day. It was going to be a thing I did. One of my dad's friends ran one. Um, one of my brother's friends ran New York when he was like 15. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. That's going to be something that I do. I wasn't fast. Uh, I played soccer. I played tennis. I never joined a track team until I got cut from my soccer team my junior year of high school. And, you know, they used to call it fall back on track. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of what I did. I didn't win any races. I was like the last guy on my team, uh, you know, the seventh man. Um, but I just, I, you know, I loved the activity of it and I could, I could, I could not go that fast, but I could go, I could go long. And, um, I also just, like I said, it's, it's, it's where I sort of found a bit of peace. Um, and it just evolved from there. I, I ran almost every day when I was in college, partly to fight off, you know, the freshman 15 and then everything else that comes with all that pizza and beer. Um, but then it just became a part of who I am and a part of what I did just about every day. It's pretty wild that at such a young age where most kids are big fans of their local baseball team or football team or like the big ball sports and they have their heroes who play for them that you were enamored with Frank Shorter, Bill Rogers and these, you know, sort of like, you know, outcasts, uh, you know, that weren't part of the mainstream you know, media or, or sports, you know, at the time and that it has persisted for as long as it has. Cause I feel like we don't really see that today, especially with kids of that age. Although I will say the, um, it was in terms of sports coverage, it was more main, it was far more mainstream almost than it is now. I mean, Bill Rogers was on the cover of sports illustrated right. for, and so was Salazar and, you know, we Ryan, had, we, yeah, we had this thing called Wide World of Sports, basically, span, I think I even said like spanning the globe and the throw of victory and the agony of defeat and all that. And that was every weekend. And, you know, you would have these these track meets from Europe beamed into you. 
So um, Edwin Moses was one of my heroes, the, you know, the intermediate hurdler who won, what, 121 races in a row. Uh, I remember being obsessed with Ronaldo Nehemiah and he, he's, you know, he broke, uh, it's 12.93, right? 12.92 mm-hmm. was his hurdle. It was his, his record in the hurdles. It stood for years. Um, these were people that were definitely like a part of the major sports consciousness in a way that I don't know that the 110 hurdle champion, uh, is right now today, or the 400, either the 400 flat guy or the 400 hurdle guy is today. So in some sense, it was more front and center and in other ways, yeah, I was kind of weird. Well, let's stay on this for a little while longer because I think you have a really unique perspective on it given what you do now professionally as a deputy sports editor for the New York Times, which is the biggest newspaper in the country here. And as you mentioned back then, that was in the consciousness of sports fans. Like those guys were on the cover of magazines. They were getting coverage in the newspapers. It was a big deal. And now it's like, we're lucky if, you know, the top athletes here in the U S especially get like, if they end up in the agate page or if they, if they get like a little mention in a roundup and almost, you know, not all the time. I mean, you've certainly had some feature articles for the times that have gone front and center in the sports page, but we just don't see that today. Certainly not on sports illustrate or anything like that. Why do you think that running distance running track and field has sort of fallen out of fervor with the sports fans in this country? Well, I can, I will, it's funny that you, you talk about our coverage because I joke around with people here and it's probably only like a, a 50% joke that, that, that by the time I get done with our sports section, it's going to, it's, I'll have turned it into runner's world. <laughs> um, so I'm doing everything I can on that front. And I do, I do really want to increase coverage of the sport, uh, mainly because our readers eat it up. Um, you know, the, I did a story last week and so I'm involved in both assigning stories and occasionally writing stories. Uh, and I, and I, I write mostly running stories these days. Um, which I appreciate. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, if you got any, send them my way. Um, but you know, last week I wrote a story about, uh, Charles Alley, who's, uh, this master's champion and, He's, he's 71 years old and he has the world record in the 400 and the 200. He runs a quarter mile in 57.26, I think is the yeah, record. I now. read that. He crushed you in some 150s too. Absolutely, absolutely crushed me. It was completely, it was just completely thrilling. Yes, he wants, he wants to also get the 100 record for his age group. Uh, there's obviously very few people who can have the world record in the hundred, the 200 and the 400 for obvious reasons. Um, but you know, so I'll do a story like that. And you know, that story was read more than just about any story last week that didn't involve Roger Federer or Megan Rapino. And, you know, you think about the number of baseball stories we write and the number of right. other mainstream sports stories we're writing. There is a huge readership for, running stories that people that runners and just people can relate to there's something sort of very elemental about this sport everybody can do it it's cheap it's accessible and the characters themselves the runners they it's it's part of the ethos that they are simply part of this larger running community i don't think roger federer really thinks himself thinks of himself 
as part of the sort of general tennis community. I would never, I would never talk to Roger Federer about our, my, the trouble I have with my backhand or the trouble I have returning serve, but it's completely reasonable for me if I'm interviewing, you know, Des Linden or Abdi Abdi Rahman, as I was in the fall to, to talk about my experiences and with at New York or in Boston or with training, you know, I once said to Abdi, I don't want to compare what I do to what you do. And Abdi said to me, he said, what do you mean? He said, we, we, we all experience the same pain. We just experience it at different times. And he's spot on with that. And makes me think of an interview I had for this podcast with Meb Kofleski, who I'm sure we'll talk about later in this conversation, given his relationship with Bob Larson. But he said the only difference is the numbers on the clock. And I think that's what makes him more relatable. And then stepping out beyond that, what makes the sport more relatable to more runners who feel like from the outside looking in, they don't have a connection with these guys and women who are running super fast at the front of the field. And they, and, but we, but they really do because I mean, these are not, these are not mega millionaires. Um, they, you know, they don't drive fancy cars for the most part. They, they don't, a lot of them don't fly business class or first class. I mean, they're back in the back of the plane with us and they're struggling with the same, you know, strained Achilles and, uh, you know, banged up knees and things like that, that a lot of other people experience. They can experience those to a greater degree. Um, but we can sort of relate to them and they can relate to, they can relate to us. And there's also the idea that you know, only one person is going to win the race. So, and it's, and so chances are they're not going to win, but they got to figure out what it means to to win their race okay and you get like meb says you don't always get first place but you always run to win mm-hmm. and you have to sort of figure out how to take satisfaction in whether you whether whether you ran your best race uh that day um what your what your goals was do you hit your hit, do you hit your goals that may be unique to you so uh, that, that, that is what I, one of the things I really love about the sport, that it's, it's universal and very elemental. And uh, you know what? If you, if you go outside and you ran around the block uh, yesterday or this morning, you're a runner as far as I'm concerned. I love that. When you're writing these stories or assigning them to reporters on your staff, and I'm speaking specifically about stories about runners that you guys have put out in the New York times. Do you see yourself as the target reader of those? Definitely. There's no question. Uh, I will, I, I'm, I'm just going to assign stories that I want to read, uh, that I think are interesting and, you know, make me interested, make, or make me even more interested that in what's in, in what's happening and what's going on. Because I feel like any sports story can also be, if it's done well, can also be about life uh, and have just so many other larger lessons with it. I think that's, I wouldn't do this if I didn't think, um, if I, if I didn't A, have that as a goal and 
B, believe that that was, that that was really possible. I mean, I've been a sports writer for about 20 years. I've been a, a, been a journalist for almost 25. And I don't think, I don't think I would do what I do if I didn't think that what I was writing could somehow help people provide, under, understand their lives and understand how they exist and, you know, just help them get through their days in a way that uh, will enrich that will enrich their lives and have them understand themselves in a better way. That's that's always the goal uh, for me with with writing these stories, whether it's writing about Charles Alley and understanding the aging process, or you know, writing assigning a story um, to Lindsey Krauss about. Uh, the, the Bowerman babes and understanding, you know, the, that the, you know, the power of the wolf is in the pack and the power of the pack is in the wolf and how these women are making each other stronger and what's the, what the meaning of support and friendship, um, both in the workplace and outside of it. Last question along these lines, do you think the sport of running is getting in its own way or the sport of track and field is getting it in its own way as far as trying to grow its fan base and grow interest in what the athletes are doing? I, I don't think so. Um, I think it's, I think it's helpful in when you say in terms of what the athletes are doing, what they're doing training wise or what they're doing on Instagram or what, what do you mean by that? I think just making more people aware of who these incredible athletes are and the magnitude of what they're doing, not just when it's the Olympic games, because obviously track and field gets its coverage every four years when the Olympics roll around, but it's sort of like in those in-between years, you know, we forget about these people. These stories don't get told, you know, quite as much. And the sport almost seems to not really care that people aren't paying attention. Oh, right. I thought when you said getting in its own way, I thought you meant was it were they not going about it in the in the in in the right way by by trying too hard to tell their stories. Yeah, I think they can, I think they can do a better job um, heading in. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of races are very focused on how many journalists are there on race day to cover the race. And the fact is on on race day, it's it's almost too late. And sometimes a lot of times the race isn't all that interesting, but that doesn't mean that going into the race, there aren't just great stories to explore, uh, that will convey these, like you say, these, these sort of otherworldly athletes, how they go about what they're doing and, um, just how hard it is and how much work goes into it. And it's, you know, look, I, I, all due respect to golfers. I know they practice a lot. I, I know it's deadly dull to stand on the driving range for hour after hour. Um, but I, I'm sorry, like being a pre professional golfer is not as hard as being a professional marathoner. Like it's just the training is different. The training is, it's brutal to train. I mean, you know what it's like. You, you want to be an elite marathoner. Um, you got to really torture yourself and, live in a very remote place and work incredibly hard, uh, put yourself through a lot of pain. And then guess what? You get two shots a year to have your greatest success. Um, and if you wake up with a bad stomach that morning, tough darts, man. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's cool a sport in that way. 
Yeah, it's a brutal existence, and so um, that it's 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 a real struggle, and that and that's some of the stuff that we're that we're trying to convey. I love that. Let's bring it back to you as a runner. You said from an early age you knew that you would eventually run marathons. What was your first marathon? I ran the Marine Corps Marathon in 1992. I think it was October 1992. Uh, I had like, a, I think about 102 fever that morning, you know, bad luck, but damn it, I'd been training for six months and there was nothing that was going to keep me off the starting line. I did pretty miserably. Um, I think I finished in about 410 or something like that. Uh, and I, but I knew like four minutes after I finished, I got to do that again. I've got to try that again. I, I knew I could do better. And I, I have not met the runner who crosses a finish line and doesn't think very quickly afterwards. I bet I could do better next time. And I think that's a, a, a really interesting trait and something really interesting about the psychology of the sport. Well, and to your point earlier, even with a lot of these top athletes that you profile, they feel the exact same way. At least all of them that I've met feel the exact same way. It's like, I could have done, you know, what could I have done to squeeze another minute or two, you know, out of this? And you start thinking about that. And, and yeah, there are those feelings of like, oh, that was so miserable. I'll never do this again. But usually they pass. And it's like, well, I'll do this again. And I know where I can go better next time. There's no way I can say this without getting into a lot of trouble. Uh, but it's sort of like, um, and I've seen this with my wife three times, uh, after giving birth, you know, the pregnancy is miserable and giving birth to a child is miserable. Um, it's got to be the most painful thing ever. But uh, before very long, they start thinking of having another one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of weird, right? <laughs> given, what, given what they put their bodies through. So, um, maybe it's somewhat, maybe it's the closest, the, the closest that men get to, uh, get, get to going through childbearing. I don't know. But having said that, you talk about like the idea of wanting to get faster. You asked Dina Castor, which one she'd like to have over. And it's the bronze medal at the Olympics. She would love to run that race again, which took place in like I think it was on about 98 degrees when the gun went off in and Athens, maybe, sweltering yeah, heat. Yeah. Maybe went down to about 95 and she, you know, that is the one that keeps her up at night because even though everyone says like it was this unbelievable performance, obviously her breakout race, um, that's the one where she thinks like if she had gone out just a little bit faster, she might've won that day. <laughs> Hey, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's the Kaiser Permanente Napa Valley Marathon and Half Marathon, which takes place on March 1st, 2020. If you're looking for your next or even your first Boston qualifier, look no further than the Kaiser Permanente Napa Valley Marathon. This race is a fast net downhill official qualifier, and it's just perfect for anyone wanting to earn their BQ. The Kaiser Permanente Napa Valley Marathon and Half Marathon are also ideal for the first-time marathoner or half marathoner. I ran the inaugural half marathon there earlier this year, and it was awesome. I mean, you're running through the heart of wine country. It's absolutely beautiful. Plus, the crowds are manageable. You're running down the Silverado Trail through the heart of Napa Valley, so either distance would make for a memorable first race. 
Don't miss out on these sweet race perks. You get free wine and beer tasting. You can have your bib mailed to you if you're coming from out of town or even if you live close. That's what I did last year. It's only a one-hour drive from San Francisco or the Oakland airports, and you'll receive a race bag, which has a long-sleeve tech shirt and a finisher medal. So mark your calendars. Race day is March 1st, 2020. You can register today at NapaValleyMarathon.org and use the code SHAKEOUT10. That's SHAKEOUT and the number 10 to save 10 bucks on your registration before September 9th, 2019. So run, sip, and savor at the 2020 Napa Valley Marathon and Half Marathon. Now let's get back to the show. How many marathons have you run since that first go at the Marine Corps in 1992? So I've done 22 more. Uh, I did five in the 90s, and I remember uh, in 1997, it was just an absolute terrible rainstorm in New York. And I remember being in in Central Park where the boathouse is, and it's like two hills come together there. And I looked down at my feet and the water was like up above my ankles. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to get to the finish line and I'm never going to do this stupid thing again. <laughs> and I got to the finish line and I and I, I finished. And about a year later, I had my first kid and um, I didn't stop running. I was always running. I had a running stroller and, you know, it was just still a huge part of my day. But I stopped marathoning in, for 14 years until 2011. And uh, I got back into it because my friend uh, runs a charity called The Hole in the Wall, which is Paul Newman's camp for kids with cancer and other very serious diseases. And I had been a volunteer counselor there, and I had always promised him that I would run to raise money for uh, for his camp one day. And uh, 2011, I just sort of said, okay, this is the year I'm going to do it. And Sure enough, I, I had a great first half. I had a tough second half of that. And a guy at work the next day said, you know, I was looking at your splits. Um, I think you can go a lot faster. I think I finished, I, I ran about 345 that day. And I, oh, like every marathoner that I know of, I sort of always wanted to qualify for Boston. Mm-hmm. And I sort of looked up at him and I said, how, I said, can you get me under 330? And he said, absolutely. And I was like, okay, I'm in. And ever since then, I've just been completely hooked on it. So, uh, I mean, I can do the math. I guess I've run 16 more marathons since 2011. And you eventually got that Boston qualifier, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I did. It took me, uh, yeah, to, you, you know, you work at something for 25 years. Eventually, uh, <laughs> eventually you might have some success. And also, I, I, got, I got some help as I... I got older and uh, the times came, the times came down a little bit. So, uh, 2015, I finally qualified. What has the marathon taught you about yourself and life in general? That I can just keep taking another step. Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't come easy. Uh, and you know, the, the cliche is it's a marathon and not a sprint. Well, you know, life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not a sprint. Uh, it's that idea that I, I would say I'm, I'm, I think I would, my, my parents would agree that I've, I was always, I was kind of a late bloomer. I didn't get really, I, my grades weren't that good in high school. Um, I didn't, I didn't sort of get good at, at, at writing at a lot of things and even running really, uh, until I got older. And, um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's the idea that the race doesn't just go to the swift. It also goes to the strong. Um, it, it's that, that's what, that's what long, you know, going long sort of really means to me. And it, it you know, opens, it's opened up that opportunity for me. I was clearly, I don't have any speed. I was never going to win or, or, you know, I, I, there's no way I could even compete in an age group race at, 200 meters or, or even 400 meters at this point. Um, but you know, on the right in, in, if, if a marathon is sort of smallish enough, uh, I've won my age group a couple of times, which is pretty cool. Uh, so it's, that's what, I think that's really what it means to me. Uh, it takes a long time to write books. It takes a long time to run a marathon. It takes even longer to train for a marathon. Uh, but if you don't take any shortcuts and, you push yourself and you do the things that you're afraid of. You, if you get comfortable with being kind of uncomfortable, uh, then that's where the magic can happen. I think the theme there is persistence and it applies to your running. And as you just detail here, other aspects of your life as well, which I think is the big lesson. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I think a lot of writing is rewriting. I, I don't get it right. The first time I, I just, I just have to, I'm, I'm just not that good at it. But if I do one draft and then I take it apart and then I do another draft and gets me, gets me a little closer, uh, and then another one, um, you know, I'll get, it's, it's per, like you said, yeah, it's, it's persistence and, uh, it's, it's doing, it's doing the work, um, doing some kind of work just about every day. And the delayed gratification from training for this race that is, you know, months or, you know, over the course of a longer cycle, years away. Same thing with writing, you know, an article. That first draft might be might be crap and you didn't really enjoy it. But once it finally gets published and you've gone through these rounds of revisions, like it feels pretty good to get it out into the world. Yeah. The 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 point where I'm trying to get to um with my running. And I think this is really important just sort of like as an approach, uh, to, you know, other things in life is I'm trying to get really focused on being as happy as I am, as happy on the starting line as I am when I get to the finish line, uh, trying to be, I think we could all, we'd all do a little better if we were more, process focused and less results focused. Uh, you know, I had a terrible race in Boston in April. It was just, I melt in the heat and it was hot and I trained, you know, you live in New York, you train all winter in 30 degree weather and then you show up in Hoppington and it's 70 degrees and humid and your body is just like not used to it. And I, you know, instead of telling myself, like, you know, take what the day is giving you, I said, no, I'm going to push through this. I think I can do it. And sure enough, I was just dying uh, by the time I got to Newton, even even really before then. I, you know, I knew it was going to be kind of a bad day. Uh, but I think what we don't do is we don't understand marathons as kind of a celebration of all the work that we've put in to get there. And we should. Uh, we should give ourselves a little bit of a break sometime. And, you know, that we, if it's the right day uh, and you're feeling good, then go ahead, get after it. Um, but don't necessarily let the fact that you, you might not accomplish your A goal 
and you might have to fall back to like your beagle and then that goal of just getting across the finish line that you have to take satisfaction in that. I think that's a great perspective and reminder for everyone listening to this, myself included, uh, because I've been there. And what you just described about your Boston race this year sounds very similar to what mine was like in 2017 when it was warm. I had the same attitude and was very frustrated with the result, but it really wasn't about that. It was about, you know, all the experience and the training and, you know, the things that I shared with my training partners and friends that went into it. That is really, you know, what we need to reflect on and appreciate and, and ultimately celebrate. Yeah. So many people are, most people will never run a marathon and they're so, you know, the, the general population is just hugely impressed with you. If you get yourself across the finish line of a 5k or, or, or a 10k or whatever you do. Um, I think most people are just proud of you if you if you're making the effort and trying to be a little bit better tomorrow than you were yesterday i i, I mean i came in just beating myself up, up uh after that boston race i was just i was really depressed for like weeks and then my book was coming out and a friend of mine said to me said you know if i ever either wrote a book or ran a marathon it would be the greatest accomplishment of my life and that's some perspective he, right he there said, he said and you've done both and you should feel good about that and i said okay. And it was, it was just really well said and, uh, really sort of sweet and supportive. And, uh, as, as you can, as you can tell, I'm not going to forget that anytime soon. Let's talk about the book running to the edge, a band of misfits and the guru who unlocked the secrets of speed came out in early June At the beginning of the book, you say, I wrote this book because I have long been fascinated by something I do not possess, which is speed. And you've talked about this a little bit, but when did the idea to start putting this book together come to you? I have always wanted to write a running book, uh, and I was always looking for the right story that would capture sort of how I feel about the sport. And I specifically did not want to write a book that was predominantly about me and my own experience running. I mean, it's, it's very meaningful to me, but I could not, I could not think that, that my life was going to really carry an entire book. Uh, just not that interesting (laughs) when you get to it. Like I said, it's interesting to me. I've conveyed some things, but you know, if you're asking for someone to, spend, you know, X number of days or weeks with you and 300 pages or so. Um, you really want them to take something away from it. And I was looking for a story that would convey, like I said, how I feel when I run and how I feel about running. And, you know, the emotions I think, uh, that are most powerful to me are, are that this is a really rebellious activity, even though it's very mainstream these days, the roots of this sport, as we know it today, are very are very countercultural. Um, you know, you look at the hero of the nineteen seventy of that early running boom in the nineteen seventies. You know, it was Prefontaine, and he had long hair and a mustache, and that's where that's what people were imitating. And they called him the James <laughs> Dean of track. Yeah, I mean these guys, uh, these these guys and these women um, who were doing this this initially, these were very, these were people very much on the fringe because there was nothing more rebellious that you could say that you were doing, uh, on a Saturday morning than running 20 miles. I mean, people just thought you were absolutely nuts. 
And to an extent, people still think you're kind of nuts <laughs> and when you do that. And I love that. I love it when, you know, someone says to me on a Saturday in the fall, like, what'd you do, what'd you do today? And I say, well, I did my 20 mile run this morning because I'm training for New York. And they say, oh, you're fucking crazy. And yeah. And, and, and what I'm thinking inside of me is, yeah, I am a little crazy. And, um, and you're proud of it. And you're proud of it. It feels good. And when you're standing on the starting line of a marathon, you can feel that humanity around you. And you're with all these other like-minded people who, who, you know, that's your tribe. It's like your little tribe of crazy out there. And so I was always looking for a story that would convey that sort of theme and that emotion. And I always knew Bob as Meb's coach. And then uh, I saw this documentary that was made about him and it touched on his backstory, which was working with essentially this group of hippie runners in the 60s and 70s at the beginning of the running boom. They called themselves the Hummel Toads and they came out of nowhere to win the 76 National Cross Country Championships back when that was just about the biggest distance race in the country other than the Boston Marathon. And I just looked at this picture and the pictures in the front of the book. And these guys had like scraggly beards and long hair. They look kind of like the Doobie Brothers or the band <laughs> or some other kind of like fringe rock group uh, from the time. And I just looked at that picture and I thought like, I have to get to know those guys. That might be my story. And so that was in 2015, um, just the day, actually the day before or two days before Boston in 2015, I think. And, uh, that's what I did. I started tracking these guys down and figuring out if there was a book there and then just having lots of long conversations with Bob and figuring out that he was the, he, this was really his story, uh, that he was the sort of first mover in a lot of this, certainly in the humble toads and that he was going to be the, uh, for lack of a better term, the mule that was going to carry this story and this narrative. This was pretty wild for me and one of the appeals of the book. Cause I lived in San Diego for three and a half years from 2010, mid 2010 to 2014. And I raced on the local scene. And every weekend when I would show up to cross country or road race, you would see people in the Humble Toads singlets. And it was usually older guys. And I didn't know anything about, you know, their history. I just got a kick out of their singlets. Had like a frog on the front, kind of fun looking. Yeah, and, the toad. Yeah, the toad, yeah, the humble yeah. toad on the, on the front. And it's the, snarky, I, it's the snarkiest toad you'll ever see. Yeah. And the, and the, and the toad is wearing a humble toad's jersey. And, you know, cause he's in a, he's in a singlet him, himself. And, that singlet has a toad on it. So the toad inside a toad inside a toad, the idea is it just goes on forever. And I never knew, I mean, I knew of Bob Larson, obviously, and have met him and interviewed him a couple of times myself. I had no idea that he was the guy who started that or that they had that level of team back in the 1970s. So aside from just wanting to learn more about Bob, like I was really intrigued by the story of these guys who, even though I'm a, you know, a history buff of the sport, I don't go that far back this well before, you know, I was born and a lot of the characters that were on that team weren't, you know, they weren't the Frank Shorters or the Bill Rogers of the time, even though they were incredible athletes in their own right. They were, they were really, they were really fast and they were really committed and they just loved, they absolutely loved to hammer, you know, that's what they did. And they loved to run with each other and 
Um, you know, Bob's basically got like three main tenets or three main principles of, of how you get to be, how you get to be better. And one of, one of them is in the title of the book, which is, you know, you got to go to your edge, you go to your threshold and you learn how to stay there. You teach your body how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and for the first, you know, at the beginning, you can do it for three miles and then you can do it for five miles and then you can do it for eight miles. And now we call that, we call those things tempo runs basically. Um, and, or, or threshold runs, and, you know, that's one tenant. The other, you know, the other tenant is, uh, you got to train with a group. Um, that's what they did. They ran together. They ran as a team. They pushed each other. Uh, the group is so much more powerful than the individual on the day that you're not feeling good. If you're with a group of people, you're, you're, you're much less likely to slack off. And then the next day you'll be powering the group and so, and you'll be preventing someone else from slacking off. And then the third one is the idea, uh, and this becomes really important in the late 90s and 2000s when, you know, we were getting our lunches eaten by the Kenyans and Ethiopians completely. We weren't even competitive with them. Uh, it's that, it's that you know, where you're born, how you're born, whether you have any money, who your sponsor is, like none of that is your destiny. Your destiny is what you make of it. Um, and, and it's what you make of it by doing the work, uh, and, and doing it with a team. Um, that's really, that's really all it boils down to. And like I say, that was really important in the two thousands because that was a time when there was all this sort of pseudoscience and we had sort of convinced ourselves that the Kenyans and the East Africans were somehow different than everybody else. They had evolved differently on the Serengeti. Their Achilles tendons were longer. Their muscle fibers were different. And, you know, Larson just said, no, that's a load of crap. They're just working harder than we are. They're doing what I did with the toads back in the 70s. They're working as a group. They're going to the edge. They're training really hard and they're doing it at elevation. And I'm going to start a group uh, and we're going to do just as well as they are. And that's that. That was the birth of the Mammoth Track Club that Meb and Dina Castor came out of. And that's the other part that was fascinating to me as a fan of the sport. And that group is a collection of individuals that I grew up watching and following. Dina, Meb, you know Ryan Hall. Eventually, Abdi was in that group for a while and didn't really know the seeds of it. And you can see it through the telling of the Hamul Toad story and Larson's beginnings, those seeds were planted back in the early mid 1970s and, you know, really grew into what at the time was the most dominant group of distance runners in the United States. I mean, we got two medals out of the 2004 Olympics and they both came from the Running USA Mammoth Track Club. Right, right. Maybe a dozen runners and two of them end up on the podium. That's a pretty good ratio, isn't it? Especially when you consider that in 2000, Nobody. We, we, we didn't have any, you know, all we got was the charity spot uh, for the men's marathon. It was Rob so, Haven, I believe. Yeah, we were, you know, we were absolutely nowhere. And as I said before, it was just about working differently. It's interesting that we got so far away from this because, you know, in the 70s and 80s, we were so dominant you know you had um you know shorter was living in bold was living in boulder and he didn't have a lot of people who could keep up with him so he did a lot of training uh, you know somewhat alone but at the same time he was there was a colorado track club that he would work with 
And then Bill Rogers basically, you know, comes out of the the greater Boston group. Um, you know, they, they ran together and trained together and Salazar to an extent came out of that group as well. Uh, but eventually land, you know, eventually trained in Oregon and, you know, there's a number of things that happened. I think the most important thing is this false lesson we got from Salazar when he just, when his career just ran into a wall and, you know, no one trained harder than Alberto. And every and a lot of people thought, well, I guess I guess you only get a certain amount of miles in your life, and if you use them up on the training roads, they're not going to be there for you on race day. And so people started running, you know, ninety miles a week and thinking they could compete at the elite level that way. In addition, people really got away from working with teams. And part of that has to do with the fact that the shoe companies were really heavily invested in the shorter distances, uh, the sprints where Americans were just cleaning up with medals and money chases medals. So um, there's part of it is that. But what we what we got back to in the 2000s is creating these groups, the first one being Mammoth, but then, you know, that spread. It's a Sports is a copycat business. And when people saw that Mammoth was having success early on, you know, what pops up next, but the Oregon Project and Brooks Hansen and any number of other groups. And that's why you have today, uh, you know, God knows how many runners living in Flagstaff, basically all training together and hanging out at the same coffee shop in the afternoon. Yeah. And groups are more prominent than they've been since you know, at this point, the 1970s, and we're seeing it in the results with American women winning major marathons, us getting medals, you know, from 800 to the marathon at world and Olympic, you know, world championships and Olympic games. And it's like, you know, this is like a, another revival of competitive distance running in this country. And it's just like, I think it's important to see where those seeds were planted. And, and for the lay runner, I, I mean, we, we've talking a lot about groups and training groups. I mean, for someone like me, I think the approach should be, um, you know, group with a lowercase g in the sense that if you've got a buddy you run with, you have a running group. Like that's, that, that's all it has to be. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, 18 people with a coach and meeting three times a week. If it's that, that's great. You know, the more you can get of that, the better. But if you got a buddy and you're accountable to that person, meeting them at 6 a.m. on Mondays and Wednesday mornings, you're a lot more likely to go run on Mondays and Wednesday mornings if you're if you're accountable for that. And if you're going with somebody, it's going to go faster. Uh, The time's going to pass more easily. You're going to push each other. You're going to we're social animals. Um, You're going to enjoy it more. I wish I ran more often with people. Uh, as much as I love to run alone, I I do wish I ran more often with people. I do it as much as I can. Um, but, uh, so I, I don't want to put, I don't want people to think, you know, I'm not an elite athlete and, uh, I, I I don't, you know, I, I can't go into, if I'm going to have to, if I'm going to get better, I need to find 15 people. No, just, you could find one person and run with them once a week or once every two weeks and you got a training group. 
Yeah, or just look for your local club. I mean, pretty much every city in America has a running club or one that's not too far away that might meet on a weekly basis or a couple times a week. And you can get in some track workouts with them, long runs, learn from people and keep yourself accountable like you had mentioned and also push yourself to a level that you're just not going to on your own. And nobody will care whether you are a 10-minute miler, right. an 11-minute miler, a 6-minute miler. No one, no one will even think twice. Everybody will merely be happy that uh, the tribe is as one more member. Go back to the book. What did Bob think of the idea when you approached him about writing it? He thought it was a terrible idea. He said, who the hell, is, who the hell gives a crap about a bunch of toads? Uh, and you know, Bob is through and through Minnesota. He spent you know, he moved, he stuck his, spent the first about 11 years of his life on a farm in Minnesota with no running water, no electricity, doing endless tasks, uh, that it takes to run a farm. Nobody works harder than these you know, farmers in the 19, even today, probably in, in terms of the amount of work from sunrise, sunrise to well, b- before sunrise, uh, and the chores even after school when these kids get home. And, uh, so he, he is, you know, the, the classic example of Midwestern humility. The fact that Bob, with all his success, the fact that, you know, he didn't, write his own book years ago sort of speaks to that sense of humility. And so it was only in, in talking to him and sort of going back through all the success he had that eventually he came around to the idea of, yeah, we did some pretty good things actually. You know, when you think about it that way, when you put it that way, we did, we did sort of pull off some good stuff. And this is the guy who was the Olympic distance coach. Um, You know, he's, He's, he's reached the top. So, uh, but, but still, he thought it was a, a crazy idea. He also didn't quite realize that he was the main character until he <laughs> saw a product that was just about finished. Um, I, I, I didn't sort of let him in on that uh, because I just wanted him to keep talking. Um, and, and it's just sort of sort of the Michael Lewis approach with Moneyball. Billy Bean had no idea that he was the main character of Moneyball. He just knew that Michael Lewis was hanging around the Oakland A's for a year, and he was talking to him a lot because he was interesting. And um, that's sort of the way it was with Bob. I kept I don't know how he didn't figure it out actually, but I think that just goes to show you that he couldn't he can't really ima- he couldn't have imagined himself being the the lead character in a book. What did you think of the finished product? He was uncomfortable initially with that. He thought it like glorified him. And we spent, we did spend some time, um, you know, he, him making suggestions about, you know, I wasn't the only guy to do this. I had help, you know, well, Bowerman said this to me and, you know, we're not giving, we're not giving Dellinger enough credit here. We need to give Joe, I think you need to give Joe Vigil more credit so um, that to the extent that he had some sort of dissatisfaction with the initial product, that was his dissatisfaction. Once we did those things, um, I would say now he couldn't be happier. I think he's, you know, he's 80 years old now, and uh, I think he feels really good that um, his life has been encapsulated this way. He's just an incredibly humble man in addition to being a great coach. 
Yeah, and just and and likes people, likes to share knowledge. That, that it's such a, it can be such a like secretive and proprietary sport. And here he goes up to Mammoth and um, his first his his first camp up there with Mev in two thousand one. They come down, they come down from the mountain, and Mev breaks the the the, the ten thousand record that was there for fifteen years. And everybody says, Joe, what the hell have you been doing? And he says, well, we went to elevation and here's the workouts we did. And this is why we think it works. And this is why we think you should try it. And we're trying to spread a movement here. If you ever wanted to know what they were doing, you, all you have to do is ask. Uh, and, you know, you compare that with some of the some of the philosophies of some of the other training groups these days. Um, it's a little different. All right, I've got to get down and get him on the podcast as well. It'll be a nice, yeah. nice addition to uh, the Coach Gags episode that we talked about at the top of this show. Definitely, definitely. How did the story or the structure of the book evolve as you were writing it? It was a matter of trying to, and part of it was a matter of like where the, where the good material was. Um, I mean, the easiest structure that I could come up with was, uh, you know, start at the beginning and tell a story through to the end. And, um, I knew there was that arc of sort of initial success. There was a curve really of sort of this rise of American distance running and then a fall and then a re-rise. So you can sort of picture that kind of wave on a paper. And I actually drew it for someone a couple of years ago and they said, you know, how do you think this book will will take shape. And I, you know, I took out a magic marker and wrote that curve on a piece of paper and I could plug in sort of points. And I, and I actually walked around with that piece of paper for, you know, I kept looking back at it and making sure that that's where the structure was. Now, having said that, um, the great thing about this is that each phone call I made to a member of the toads, the first question I would ask them is why did you run? And there wasn't one of them who said, I don't know, I just sort of did it. I was good at it. And I, you know, I just tried hard and did it and never really thought about it. They each had a very powerful story about what running meant to them. So for instance, Ed Mendoza, who was a member of the Toes, he was always really small. He was, you know, his, he wasn't very athletic. His little sister used to get picked for baseball games at the park before him. He would be humiliated by that. And, um, you know, then he goes to high school and he does well in a 600 meter run in, in gym class. And the track coach says, you, you should run track and field. And he says, what's track and field. And then he starts going to practices and he realizes he's faster than just about anybody in the school. And finally he feels like his body has a purpose to it. And he feels like he, he, he has this sort of, there's, there's a physical meaning to his existence and, uh, you know, that's just like a very powerful thing to have happen when you're a teenager. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And, you know, you had other guys who were running and running sort of saved them from the Vietnam war. And, you know, another guy named Kirk Pfeffer, who was a real loner and, um, he couldn't really make any friends, but when he would go for runs alone, even when he was a little kid, he would just sort of, he described being sort of out in the streets of San Diego and smelling the eucalyptus and the other um, vegetation that was in bloom and it would bring him this kind of sense of peace and that it was, that it was okay that he was alone and he could, he, he, he was going to be all right. 
Um, so you had all these really, really incredible stories and I wanted to highlight each of them and each of these characters and then how they came together as a team and had this mission to take on the rest of the country. And they did and they beat them. Last question. What was your biggest takeaway from the book that you hope other readers of it take away as well? I I think it's the idea uh, that we mentioned before, which is that, you know, if you, if you get, if you can make yourself, um, if you can make yourself comfortable with being uncomfortable, you really can be a little bit better tomorrow than you were yesterday. And that's really true in anything. Uh, I don't, how many times do you hear somebody, you know, somebody he's, who's either, who's had a really good life, who's very happy. Maybe they've had financial success, great success with the relationships. How many times do you hear that person say, you know what the secret to it all was? I did the safe thing. I didn't take any risks. You, you don't hear that. Like what you always hear is, you know, the key to it was there was this thing And I wasn't sure whether I could do it. I was kind of afraid to try it, but I did it and it worked and nothing has ever been the same since. And I think that can be true on your run tomorrow morning. I think that can be true on having a conversation uh, with a mother or a father or a child that you wanted to have that you haven't had. Uh, I think it can be true with, you know, telling somebody that you love them, you know, that is really where um, fulfillment and great things can happen is when you take that chance. And that was just, that's sort of what these guys did. That's what these great runners do. And uh, I think that's what we can all aspire to do as well. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Matt Futterman, thanks for coming on the Morning Shakeup podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. We did it. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in and being a part of this journey with me. Also, a big thank you to the Kaiser Permanente Napa Valley Marathon and Half Marathon for sponsoring this episode. The event takes place on March 1st, 2020. Run, sip, and savor as Napa Valley offers the ideal destination for a racecation. Run down the Silverado Trail on scenic net downhill courses, then celebrate your achievement at one of over 500 valley wineries, excellent restaurants, local breweries, or even on a hot air balloon. Use the code SHAKEOUT10, that's SHAKEOUT and the number 10, to save 10 bucks on your registration before September 9th, 2019. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, please tell all your friends and followers about it on your preferred social media platform and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which will help new listeners to discover the show. A big shout out to my man, John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for the show, the editing, the music, all of it. And he's a big part of my small team here at the morning shakeout. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also conveniently called the morning shakeout at the morning slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to that you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Frioli, and you've been listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.